Hello, everyone, and welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here, as always. If you have come via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, it's really simple. Just head over to officehours.global. That's our primary web portal for information and links about the show. Gives you a lot of information there. Uh, or you can just use the QR code that is coming up over here in just a second. There it is. It's sneaking down there. Uh, you can either shoot that with your phone or something like that, or you can just type in the askofficehours.global uh, thing that you see at the top of the of the QR code. It will take you into the system for putting questions into the show. And as always, our show is driven by your questions. So you put them in there. And then if you're in the other side of the system, which is the Mukana system, you can actually vote those questions up and down. And that's how we determine what questions go first and which ones we spend the most time on. So use the system if you can. Uh, Today in our second hour, uh, we're going to talk about commercials. Much of my career actually has been spent working on commercials of one form or another, and uh, it's a huge industry still. Things have changed. It used to be mostly broadcast that I was working on, but today we see over-the-top and cable and wireless services and all the Internet is still driven by people who want people to buy their stuff. And generically, if you want somebody to buy your stuff, you need to get a message to them that you're out there and that you have a good product and prices. And so that's how the commercial system gets driven. We'll look at that, all a tiny bit of where it's come from and mostly where it might be going. That's in our second hour today. So that's what we're heading into. Mitch, what's our first question for today? Thanks, Bill. First in, Mike Edwards from, excuse me, uh, we've jumped the question. Um, it's for me. If you were to design the perfect ATEM replacement, what would it have? Well, uh, let's see, Mitchell. What would it have? Well, I think it would have uh, a number of devices on it that would make sense. Wouldn't it be cool to have XLR connectors on it for starters, uh, SDI, obviously? And I, I started thinking a little further, maybe a, uh, a preamp from our friends at Sound Devices. And, of course, along with that, uh, noise assist. A uh, whole lot less buttons, a smaller form factor, and 4K output uh, that get, get us into Zoom real fast. A lot of people want to get into this. So, Jeffrey Powers, what do you think? Uh, for me, it would be modu modular ability. Uh, start it, you know, uh, take the ATEM as a basic and then have the ability to work out from there so you can build up to where you want to be because sometimes you don't some people don't need super source uh but other people do and maybe that maybe down the road they will need that so having a uh an adaption to that uh to that unit would be great because then you get into the infrastructure and like i said you build from there and there's always a way to build up courtney uh, I do, besides the uh, XLR balanced audio inputs, I'd uh, put a small screen like they have in their little uh, 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 pieces that control control fronts that go on their uh, web, web interface and so on. That little two-inch screen would be handy to have to verify input signals, so on. You could put your, uh, you could pick what goes to that little screen just for verification. And I'd like to see two USB uh, camera inputs uh, so that you could mix HDMI and USB cameras, webcams, together again for the first time. Cool. Uh, Alex? Yeah, I was thinking about the, uh, uh, the inputs, and I think that um, I would be tempted to say just convert the inputs to a line input instead of having them think that they're mic inputs <laughs> you know so so the uh, you know and stop trying to you know because I think that the issue is is that I I um you know but TA3s would be nice as well like little TA3s so not full size XLRs you couldn't fit them in there 
But TA3s would be nice. I would get rid of about half the buttons and make it easier to get to the buttons that were there. Um, I really think that it should be programmable um, so that the buttons can be, like every button can mean something. Like it all, I don't need to be programmable. I just need the buttons to to report back. This is a software fix. What's ha what when they're hit, and and it, and and deliver that to the API so that I can tell those buttons to be anything. If I'm Mix Effect Pro, if I have Mix Effect Pro, I could make it mean mean anything. You know, um, when I'm when I'm hitting the hitting that thing. Uh, I I also think that there's a market for a a Tim that doesn't have any buttons at all. Like just it's just inputs um, and and outputs. And I know that there's a one ME that's a little like that, but the one ME doesn't have. A super source. So something that is a little bit more beefy when it comes to like it might have two super sources, it might even have two MEs, but it's just a little box. <laughs> like and it doesn't do anything else. And you can get a we can get an interface for it or just use Mix Effect Pro or something else, but um keep the price down. Um give us maybe a maybe another super source or or whatever for the you, we give you the buttons and you give us back another super source. Um and um and uh and and I think that it doesn't I, I think that in a lot of ways this is kind of a perfect little box but a lot of times i just want to put it away somewhere and control it with something else you know and that can be a stream deck that could be mix effect pro that could be a lot of other things um and and i think that the there's just nothing in that really inexpensive i can put the box have the box sitting somewhere and just running my switch for me i know we're getting very close to a software switcher by at that point but the challenge is is that as we've talked about in the past software switchers can do more they can do a lot but they can, you can also ask them to do more than they can do. And so having something that's just FPGA means that it's, I mean, the way that the subsystem works, it's very rare, not impossible, but very rare for the switcher to crash um, because you can't tell it to do more than it can do. It kind of limit keeps you in a limiter. Um, and I think that that's the challenge with software switchers in general. It's fascinating. So a switcher, but without any knobs, buttons, T-bars, yeah, take away all that stuff. In general, I think that there's a... Uh, there's a need for more of that. So we send away um, things to other people for remotes. So like same thing with like a mix pre. If someone asked me what I want with a mix pre, I was like a box that does exactly what a mix pre does without any dials or buttons or anything else. It just, it connects to the internet and you, you know, maybe it has a, a couple dials for the user, right? So what's the volume in my ears? What's my mix? What's my, you know, like a couple handful of things that are creature comforts for the user. But outside of that, like mic gain, all those things are all something that the user doesn't have to think about because we want to send that to the user and have it and, and get it and control it. The problem we, the biggest problem we have is we send out a mix pre and now we have to tell them what knob to turn, you know, and that's problematic, you know, on our end. Mitchell thoughts. Yeah. I think that Alex is onto something. I think that, uh, you know, once you set it up the way you want to, maybe it's a piece of software that does it like the uh, software control and uh, you program it accordingly, and then you, it just sits there and does its thing. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me. And wouldn't it be cool if sound devices uh, could get back in the video business and make it for us? Oh, Guy Cochran. I was going to keep quiet about the NDI thing, but, you know, of course I would love one that had <laughs> NDI and SRT and Dante all right there. But the other thing that I'd be happy with is if they would just take the ATEM software control and allow us to put it up in the cloud with SRT and NDI input, and then... Like the camera app, I think that eventually they're going to start charging for just like Filmic Pro did for these little upgrades. So in, when you buy an app, you know, kids do it all the time where they have to upgrade their character or whatever, and it's nine bucks or whatever. So I think we're going to start to see things getting unlocked. So maybe if you want uh, multiple super sources or maybe if you want uh, access to templates or things like that, mix effect style um, uh, 
uh, transitions that you pay another $9 and it unlocks that. So, but Blackmagic is a hardware company, so we'll see what they what they're thinking. I mean, cloud, cloud is the future, but they're a hardware company. So they got to, they got to put their pennies, uh, and invest into the future. So I think they're going to play both sides of the coin for the next decade until they, they run out of things to, to make the people physically want. Watch out. Here come the micropayments folks. Uh, Courtney. Yeah. Like doesn't, don't all the, uh, I know I have a, uh, television studio HD, all the rack mount switchers for ATEM rack mount switchers, you could just cover up the front panel of them and remotely control them uh, using the software, couldn't you? And yeah, they're just more so, expensive. Like I just want something that's a lower well, price point. The television point studio HD is under a thousand dollars without a super source. Like that's the problem. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. so you yeah. can't. You know, like okay. it's. So well, the two of like, me, yeah, two of me does, and then it's a lot more money. You know, like like it's you know it's there. I feel like that the super source is so key to the to the to building something that looks good and and so you need the super like for me it doesn't really make sense i mean other than like a really like you're a salesperson and you want to just be able to cut between a couple things without a super source you know it's just really crippled um and so so having you know spending a little extra and charging us a little bit more for any switcher that has a super source like i think that the a10 mini pro should have a super source in it you know it's it's just adding a little bit more processing and sure hundred dollars more or whatever it is that you're charging but it should be it should be there um you know so yeah i, I you know i think that um and i do agree with guy that i don't know the ndi part but but the i don't think that's possible for a bunch of reasons so um but but i think that black magic should absolutely take the software that they already have and have it just be a software switcher. Like it just does exactly what the what their software does. They give you a spec of a Mac or a PC that you could use for it, probably a Mac Mini, and you could just do software. And then you could put it in the theoretically in the cloud, um, uh, but you could also have it on a on a computer. Um, and theoretically, it could be, you know, you could like because you're on software now, and you can say I want a Forami or Ademi or whatever, and keep paying for a more expensive version of that and get a bit faster machine. Um, you know, to do those things. But I think I totally agree that they should, I think that they're going to get, going to have a hard time competing over time if they don't have a software switcher. And they could right now, new, like if they put out a software switcher that did everything that the current switcher does, like if they, I think they should put out the ATEM level for free. Like here's a free switcher that goes into the, into the cloud and then make a forum, you know, because all it is is software and make it like, you know, 200 bucks or a hundred dollars or something like do something that's just disruptively less expensive, you know, like a $99 for me switcher or whatever that does all the things that theirs does and has exactly the same interface as our hardware, but does it now you can do it in the cloud because it would, it would, if they did it at 49, if they did the for me at $49, it would nuke the industry. <laughs> like, like, it, like it would just it, not because the, it's better than the other switchers. It's that at $49, it, it's enough you know, to just, just burn everything to the ground because there's so many people that would just, that would be good enough for 90% of the shows out there. And it would just, it would just drive the whole market into the ground. And that's, and I think that's a much more defensive measure than what they're doing right now, which is trying to put out all these little switchers, you know? And so, um, but I, I do think that putting those switchers in the cloud would be um, pretty amazing or just having software switchers in general. This is generating a lot of interest. Courtney? Yeah, wouldn't it be fairly difficult to do that in the cloud? Because you would have to have a piece of hardware to uh, genlock your incoming signals together so that you could fade between two inputs, let's say, or, you know, mix. You just do don't genlock. I mean, you just, you just resync them. You sync them as, as they come in. 
I mean, you just yeah, that, that right. Would, but that's going to require hardware, not software, in the uh, at the at the well, server I mean, somewhere. Memo Memo does it, and, and, and Vmix, Vmix does, does it, it. and like yeah. they all do it. They all say, "I get I get you know video in, and I just take the the next frame." Yeah, we moved from Genlock to Frame Shakers that just figured it out, kind of in software guy. But yeah, I was just thinking, how would we get the video up there? And now we've got these, uh, you know, Black Magic app phones. So mm -hmm. imagine just being able to send Black Magic yeah, camera right up to Black Magic switcher oh, yeah. in the cloud. And then if you needed SDI input, now all of a sudden you've got these USB uh, phones where you just throw a capture card right onto the bottom of the phone, and now you can send that up. And to resync, there is with SRT, there is a little time shift uh, that'll stamp um, the frames, and so you can resync. So if you have five different phones from five different people with different HDMI, SDI, plus the camera app, you could resync all that stuff. Currently with SRT Mini Server, that'll do it. Yeah, I I think that uh, I don't think I, I don't think that Blackmagic is going to make anything on that phone cost money. I think they're just going to keep adding features. They've done it with the Resolve. They're going to keep on just pumping features into it, and I think that they're going to do that so that so that they own that market that, that everybody shooting video on their phone is going to be using a, the black magic software you know and i think that that i think it sets up exactly what guy was talking about running right now if i was a news gathering agency i'd be looking really hard at resolve and the, and the black magic cloud because now i can send out people and have them just turn on that app and log in and be sending footage back in almost real time you know back to it and it could theoretically stream as you said like stream those that, that footage back to everyone so it's it is a um, that's that's a um, incredible Trojan horse, you know, for them um, to set that up if they if they actually go down that path. Uh, let's see. Uh, Mitchell wanted to get one last word in before we move on. I just wanted to give thumbs up to what Alex just said because I know that NFL Films does something similar to that. They've got a camera back that they stick on their uh, Amiras and it sends it back to a server somewhere and then it gets sucked into the mothership and then they do their editing. So you know somebody making that. You know, costs so that anybody can do it makes a lot of sense. Cloud is coming. Watch out. Let's go to the next question. And it's coming to us from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. Morning, everyone and the panel. What makes the box form factor so appealing for live streaming or media production? It's responding to the DSLR shooter's new Cinerig. We, we were looking at that earlier, and I think a guy or somebody has it up there. Mitchell, what do you think? That's our friend uh, Caleb uh, Pike over at the DSLR Shooter. He has created this uh, add-on to an FX3 or an FX30, and uh, it's really quite nifty. Um, it slides onto the back of the camera and provides more mounting points you could possibly ever want and uh, a, a power supply and distribution system that makes a lot of sense using that small rig uh, battery that Alex likes, uh, whichever one you want. Um, I kind of prefer it to be a, a gold mount uh, battery um, uh, mount on the back of it, but it turns out he's making one that has a gold mount on it too. Um, also, they're coming out with a uh, HDMI to SDI uh, converter so that you have that on your uh, FX3. It's worth its weight in gold. I'm almost ready to trade in my uh, complete Tilta system just to uh, buy this uh, because it makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm looking at it, and the only thing that I would say that uh, was a potential negative is that uh, you lose the uh, digital connection to the audio on the audio handle that goes on the FX3 and the FX30 uh, because of that cheese plate. So uh, you're not have, you don't seem to have any regular audio inputs going into the camera. And the other thing is I'm not sure if the timecode cable 
will uh, work with the box too. So if you want time code, you might be out of luck. It's got upper and lower cheese plates, so it's more a cheese sandwich. That's interesting. Courtney? Yeah, the reason that a lot of people are going to these is because there's many more ways. These are small, lightweight cameras, and there's many more ways to use them these days uh, in production because it used to be your camera would weigh 35 pounds and it had one 3-8-inch screw on the bottom of it, and you had to mount it on a tripod, <laughs> on a dolly, and that was it. Uh, or, you know, you could hand-hold it on your shoulder, but these days, they have gimbals and drones and uh, every imaginable way to support the camera and uh, put it in situations where you could not get a camera before because of the small size. And this kind of turns it into the erector set of camera production. So you can put it together in whatever form factor that best suits your production. Uh, you know, whatever on-camera on monitors you want, you can put them where you want them rather than you know, they're attached to the back of the camera and you can't, they're not really flexible as to where to position them. And you can put as big a battery as you need to complete your shot uh, as opposed to only one that fits on the camera or having to carry around a block battery and plug it into cables. Uh, it makes it, uh, with transmitters, it can make it cable-free so that you're free to do Steadicam shots and other shots that would require unencumbered by, unencumbered by cables. So this adds a lot of flexibility. It is, it, is it is genuinely an erector set for your box camera DSLR. It's going that way. I've looked at cameras recently. I said, what part of that is actually the camera? I can't figure it out. Alex. Well, this and this gets back to what we had. I think we talked about this yesterday. But, but you know, a, a lot of this was sourced from uh, when we when we had the F950, which is the camera right here, um, and they were using it for Star Wars. One of the things they asked for was, hey, we would like to... Um, uh, it's too heavy for the motion control car arm. And so, so what Sony did is when they went from the 900 to 950, they, they built a removable optical block. And so the optical block could come out and there was a big um, there was a big cable that went from the optical block back to the body. So the body would be somewhere on the kit, but it would be, you could, you could run a long wire to it and just have the optical block. And that really was the beginning of, hey, we don't need the, re the rest of that processing there, or let's take that, let's separate that away from those cameras. Um, because it'd be a lot more efficient, and and here's why you that becomes important. Um, if you look at this, this is a, this is from YMCinema.com, but this is a you know a, a, you know kind of what you see here, which is that just an immense amount of little bits and bobs, range finders and base plates <laughs> and wireless distribution and handles and everything else. And and the thing is, is that what's interesting about that is that it changes for every filmmaker and it changes for every DP and it changes for every camera operator. Um, and what they don't want is for the filmmaker, it, what they don't want is for the manufacturer to figure this out. They're like, we can figure this out. If you look at my brother trying to balance a, you know, a, cam a camera on his Steadicam um, or build something else that's there, they, they just want, just give me the optical block version of this with the minimum number of things, maybe be able to record, maybe be able to do a couple other things. But outside of that, just I'll build the rest of the camera for you. Um, and, and having lots of cheese plates means that you can just kind of keep adding things on. And, you know, that's that's it, it really works well. And so it's and it's actually one of the most limiting parts of a lot of these little cameras is they try to build them into a still video camera, a still camera uh, form factor in like the FX30, the one that I'm using here. It, it's it's built as a still camera and none of us are going to ever use it as I mean, I don't know, maybe somebody's using it as a still camera. I don't know anybody that uses an FX30 as a still camera. And so that we, we have a form factor for the camera 
that we're never going to use. Like <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. So um so anyway, so that's the that's the distinction is is I just want a box. I'd much prefer the FX30 is great. I would much prefer it to be a box. In fact, I'm much more excited about the LR1, which is the basically an A7 chip that's in a tiny little kit. They made it like the smallest form factor we can possibly have for an A7 chip in, in the LR1. And it's not trying to have that form factor at all. And I think that's a superior setup. Mitchell. Yeah, Alex brings up a good point because you don't hold a video camera the same way you do a still camera. You don't hold it like this with your hand on the lens. It's just, it's a little shaky. And it's okay if it's a little heavier because it's kind of gyroscopic and you can hold it like right around here to your chest. Um, maybe they put a, should put a gyroscope in it. Oh, there you go. Complete stabilization all the time. Then you have to have battery. Anyway, uh, cool discussion though. Let's go to the next question. Peter Moore from Auckland, New Zealand asked, didn't know this hardware existed till I got an email just now. And there's a link to a Personas device. Alex. So, you know, I will admit I have not used Personas hardware for a very, very long time. Um, uh, it's, <laughs> it's been, yeah, but it is, this actually has me really interested in taking a look at what they're doing. So uh, let me see if I can pull this up here. This is a, um, uh, this is the, the mixer here and it's a you know it's a big hardware mixer um and uh but the main thing is is that it does it they really built the software now this is not potentially different than than a lot of things that you might run with a x32 or even with the yamaha or and again we saw stuff from calrec that was much more expensive but this is really it looks like what they've done is they've really built built the system for remote you know control like it's not like oh someone built some software and we'll see how it goes. It is really and and this is probably more in line with the Calrec that we saw a couple of weeks ago, which is that we're building the we're building the OS and building everything else to run it um, and to really have um, you know. So it, it'll be interesting to see. You know, I think one of the things, by the way, they they list here that I think is an important note is this uh, troubleshooting. One of the things that's really powerful about better color there troubleshooting. One of the things that's really powerful about having a remote mixer is the fact that you could have someone that's more advanced log into that mixer and make changes to it as opposed to having only the person that's sitting there on the board. Um, the only thing I hope that they have somewhere in there that we w really wish we had with these boards is to be able to turn off the faders. <laughs> so like, just go, you know, like we're not listening to you anymore um, because uh, we, we have problems with operators who keep on wanting to do things after we've told them not to. So anyway, so the, um, uh, but, but I think that, uh, this is really interesting. I don't know what the price. Oh, here we can hit buy. See what see what it costs here. That's um, about two thousand dollars for the for the mixer. But they have. I, I'm curious as to whether the rack mixer fits into the same thing. So there's a rack mixer, which is a 16R, which is an eight ninety nine, um, and it's a sixteen input. Let's see if it has. Yeah, it's got a bunch of inputs on the back. So it'll be. I'd be interested to see. Um, oh, that's really interesting, actually. Uh, with that software, yeah, so the um so here's the rack. This is the rack mixer and sixteen input, sixteen channel series. This this would not be enough for what we're doing, but it's a really interesting okay, so it doesn't have let's see here, let's see if I can expand this a little bit. So um okay, so you've got some mix out you've got a bunch of mix outputs, we've got left and right output, not a lot of lines. Um and there's it doesn't Network audio, I don't know if that means, I think it's probably their network audio, not 
not our not Dante. So that would be the the only thing that I would uh, be concerned about. I'm looking for Dante real quickly. I very much doubt for eight ninety nine they'd give you that. But it has. You can see the mixer. You know, this is the monitor mixer here. Um, it's interesting. I mean, I I, I think that it is a. Uh, they're innovating. Um, it'd be it'd be really fun to to test and see how it works. Step in the right direction, but maybe mm -hmm. not all the way there just yet. Let's go to the next question. And it's from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Roscoe asks, not shot on iPhone, but any thoughts on the Fox MLB Major League Baseball adding drone shots to the World Series? I'm surprised they haven't had them before. I, I guess blimp shots before, but Jeffrey Powers, what do you think? Yeah, it's uh, a lot of fun. Uh, got to see a, a little bit of it. They did uh, things like uh, they brought a drone right behind the uh, umpire, and so you could actually see the the uh, pitch uh, being delivered. They did a lot of flybys uh, from the top of the stadium down. They did a couple flybys of the of the uh, of the crowd, which is very interesting because you get that gets a little you get into the uh, kind of the scary area when that happens. I'm trying to pull up the picture here. That I let's do it this way. There we go. Um, and this is one of the pictures, which now it's not working. Great. <laughs> there we go. Uh, this is one of the dr drones that they did. They, at the beginning, they had one of the announcers actually uh, fly this drone, and he flew it right on. That's on the announcer table, and he did a great job on uh, on navigating that to where it needs to be. But uh, that was one of my understanding three different sized drones that they used for uh, for this. So it was to stimulate uh, stimulate the audience uh, that that's watching to get them more into the game. And uh, I think if uh, if if this could be something that we'll see in more games. The, the biggest thing is they just cannot get in the way because the second they get in the way, they're probably going to get banned. <laughs> more than likely. Courtney? I'm surprised they got clearance from the FAA to use them over people like that. I guess they were so small and light that they didn't come under the FAA regulations. So they're under 250 grams, and uh, then I think they're uh, okay but uh, it is dangerous, but I guess if you're flying something that's not any heavier than a baseball, I guess the people in the stands aren't any more at risk than they are being hit by a foul ball or a home run. So I guess it's okay. I thought I, first I saw, I saw that uh, scene where it's flying over the crowd. Uh, thought it might be the sky cam or the cable cam, and that's something else if they're running a cable cam on that particular game. you got to watch out for those cables, too, if you're flying that drone. You may not see them flying an FPV drone. Uh, you fly into one of those cables, it could be bad. Alex, I think you had, yeah. had it up there. Yeah, I had it up there for, for a minute. Uh, the um, Here you can see a shot here. Hold on. We'll, uh, yeah, because that was pretty interesting. The one down the audience in the stands was pretty... There's, the, there's there kind of the... A, uh, a shot of it uh, flying over. I do think that it's probably minimal danger of it running into you. Uh, it's very, very small, and uh, and so it's. It, it mean, and they've they've obviously protected the blades, you know, in the in the system. And so, other than you know, I mean, it could it could theoretically do that. I think I bet you there's a bunch of insurance that's involved <laughs> with, with with that. Uh, there's probably a two million dollar insurance just for that drone. <laughs> Um, uh, it is really hard. It has been, I mean, we've worked, I've worked on shows that are in stadiums and the MLB has been like, nope, 
no no drones no drones within miles of the stadium like it is like a thing that they just do not want to have anybody and, and then it got then they broke down and said you can have the drone but it can't go over the edge of the stadium like that was the next thing so we could go up from the parking lot and show the stadium but we're not allowed to go over any heads you know and so this is a huge you know move forward um uh to to that and I, and i have to admit looking at that little drone i i was thinking about i was having a conversation um with someone probably uh, I want to say 22, 23 years ago about the fact that the, that the, that the CIA was going to release patents on all these little cameras they had, and it was going to cause this huge explosion in people being able to, um, uh, have really, really small cameras. And he said, you're, and, and they said, you're going to be able to put them on little things. You're going to be able to, you're going to put them on like connect them to your computer and everything else. And, and they were, uh, but one of the first places they use them is actually in sports and in, in the in NFL started using them for um, the, the first use of those little cameras was uh, I believe the pylon, they started playing with the pylon cameras. Um, but, but those were all, that's all like we, you know, the, the, the move to all these tiny little cameras was all, all came out of spies. <laughs> so, so spies they, they had them for a long time and they finally let, let everybody use the use use the patents that they had to build something else anyway your tax dollars at work yeah, yeah anyway exactly, exactly. <laughs> just like tang tang was paid for <laughs> by the nasa <laughs> right right exactly um don't forget you can always put your questions in we encourage you to do that and vote on the questions vote them up or down as you choose uh we've got a good number of questions now and you can also do that for the second hour questions anything you want to know about commercials spots tv advertising the rest of that stuff we'll have, be having that as kind of our general lab and looking at how things are done and so your questions are relevant to that too let's go on to the next question and if you want to put your qr code questions in here's one right now from michael dickman in munich Alex tested the iPhone 15 with Dante Avio USB-C. Were you able to route phone calls to or music and media only? Did it work out, Alex? Uh, I haven't tested it with the phone call. Um, I, I will. I'll test it with the phone call. I, I, didn't, I didn't think of testing it with the phone call. It just shows up as a, head, as a headset. When you plug it in, it goes, hey, is this a headset? And you go, yes. And it goes, okay, gotcha. You know, and so I don't think that it's going to have any impact on it. So, yeah, I don't think that's a problem at all. Right, I, I don't. I don't have oh. proof. I don't have proof yet. So it's still theoretical knowledge. So you should take it uh, with some with a disdain. Salt. With 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 yeah. some disdain. With some disdain yeah. because it's theoretical okay. knowledge. But we'll 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 move it to to the more proper uh, a, um, uh, actual knowledge uh, in the next day. We'll get statistics and the rest of the yeah vetting. Uh, next question, Jens Olson from Sandpoint, Idaho. If the Korg Nano Control is the low end side of MIDI controllers. What are the medium and high-end versions, and what added features do you get? Mitchell. I'm just going to quickly say Scarhoy. They have cool stuff. Okay. Yeah, well, they've been around here, and uh, we've always liked what they've done. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I have to admit that our session with Chris, by the way, uh, we're going to do part two next next Wednesday. So Chris is going to sit down with me. I'm not going to touch anything. I'm not going to make mine any better. I'm just going to wait for Chris. Um, but we're going to do part two next Wednesday. If you didn't see yesterday, you really should watch the lab. It was really awesome. You know, it, the the video that we have up on the website that Chris put together that was like 10 minutes long was awesome. And the lab was so much fun and really inspired me to think about my entire audio pipeline going through my computer. Um, it's just really, really powerful. Um, and so I have the little Korg, which we're going to we're going to talk about how to tie that in next um, to, uh, next week. Um, and I'm also getting I'm getting another one. 
um, to test, which is a Behringer, which only has rotary encoders. And the reason that I'm doing that is because uh, I, I think that if they're if they're infinite rotary encoders, they don't go all the way to one place or another. I'm curious as whether they'll update more properly than having sliders and you know having um, you know so uh, faders. And so so I'm gonna I got that one as my second one because I have a mixed pre two. And so um, anyway, so the I think that um, the when you add more of those things, remember these are it's not it really MIDI controls. The Scarhoy will is a good controller. But there's a lot of things that live under $200 that are these little MIDI controllers, and they've got tons of knobs, and they've got tons of sliders. I don't see a lot of them that have more than nine or ten um, uh, faders, but there's a lot of them that have like, – Kai makes one with like, I don't know, 20 or 30 little rotary rotary encoders. And so all of these can be mapped to all those things in SoundDesk. And so you can definitely have a lot more control and define a lot more control with ones that have that, for me, it's mostly a desktop issue. I looked at those the other day, and I think that it's just like, where would I put it? And so if you have more room to put it somewhere, that makes sense. Like right now I'm working on, um, I'm going to build a basic, like a really rough 3D model of this guy here um, so that I can build a stand for this one and the other one and, you know, kind of so I can print one. Um, so, but, but you know, right now I've, I have a serious problem on my desk of too many things, so I couldn't figure out where to put it, but you can get a lot more features out of it. And Courtney. Courtney? Yes, sorry. Sorry, I was trying to cut back to the one. I, I did, there's tons of these uh, USB type MIDI control panels. Here's one from Akai for about 109 bucks. It gives you like nine faders and the three knobs on each channel and two buttons on each channel. Each one of those is assignable. Uh, Behringer makes one too that I haven't quite been able to find yet and here's x-touch of course which we've seen before which is more expensive that i think this has does this have flying faders uh they do make some with uh, the x-touch does the x-touch yes, has, motorized, does faders, have yeah. motorized faders so, so you can get up money. to the five or six hundred dollar range for these usb midi controllers with motorized faders so you can go full out if you need to nice all right hopefully that takes care of you gens let's go to the next question from Douglas Carmichael asking, Personas is integrating live remote mixing into their Studio Live Series 3 digital mixers. Is this a sign of wider acceptance of the Belfast method we pioneered? Alex, what do you think? I don't know if we pioneered it. We, we, we played with it early. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people that have been thinking about this, and, and that software has lasted has been around for a long time um, through Behringer and other others. But I do think... That I, I think that really what happened during COVID was people started figuring this out, and now people know that this is a, a viable market, and this is something that, and it's something that we've been doing. Again, we've been doing remote mix control since 2015, 2016. So you know, at least on Pixelcore, we we were doing it early on. So so it's not um, super new. It's just that it was very clunky. It's been very clunky to do this. The, I think that what will be really interesting to see with the personas uh, is what's really missing is handshaking over the internet. So right now, everything that we've done up until now required VPNs and required all kinds of network, and this one may still require that. But the handshake of saying, I am available or I'm looking, I'm checking into the cloud. Teradek did this really well over time with the with what they did with, I've got an encoder and a decoder and, and in the cloud I can connect those two together and then have them streaming to each other. What you wanna see somewhere in the future is uh, devices being able to do that. I, I check into the cloud like I'm available 
you know, for the hardware device and the software controller says, goes into the cloud and says, I can, I'm available. And then in the cloud, we can tie them together. And I think that that's going to be, that's, that's the next piece that we haven't seen done yet uh, with these, with this kind of thing. But I, I do think you're seeing more and more mixers that are that I think the weird thing about the mixer, to be honest, is that that it's got all those sliders. Like I just want I want something much more like a rack that is really designed as only going to be controlled remotely. So we'll see. Let's go to the next question. Stefan Fischer from Würzburg, Germany, about the Fenwick solution. What causes Sounddesk to lose its input selection, which happened several times during the setup? Did you and Chris ever figured it out, Alex, exactly what was causing that? I would ask Chris. So Wednesday, next Wednesday, let's take that question and bring it back next Wednesday. Um, and uh, in fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hit cancel, and then I'm going to send this back to your notes. There we go. So it's in your notes. Um, bring that question back in next Wednesday for Chris, um, and then he might be able to under uh, you know explain what what happened there. Or if you see Chris again, uh, bring it up, and we'll we'll talk about it. And then ask again so that everybody on the show can figure it out, help help everyone. Uh, let's go to the next question. And it's a QR question from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Can we ask questions on both AskOfficeHours.Global and Mukana, or should we just use one per app per show? Will AskOfficeHours questions get stored in Mukana? Uh, what do you say, Alex? You know that system better than anybody else. Uh, it, should people be using both during one session? You can. <laughs> <laughs> You can like there's nothing stopping you. Um, it, 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 so it's there's nothing. So you, yes, you can. Uh, it is not the intended solution. The intended solution is to make it easier for people who want to ask questions. And of course, you can ask questions right now if you if you use the QR code. I was trying to. I, was, I threw a curve. Yeah, he's trying to do the problem. <laughs> Um, what you, you don't want to, to do is ask exactly the same question yeah. in both systems because you'll cut in half your votes. So you right. know, be, so, be wary. Yeah, so uh, it, you, if you if you go to askofficehours.global, you can ask the question. You can ask that any time of the day, and it's really designed to be both something that's available for people who haven't who don't know how to log in and just want to ask a question and watch the show often enough to see when that question pops up. And it's also available for people who want to do it over a long period of time. Like basically, any time we're not on air, you can just ask the question through askofficehours.global, and so just keep that saved somewhere and do it. If you're doing it to manipulate the system, which is that, well, we, the reason that Paul's asking, I think, is because we limited, we, this is usually a Sunday discussion, but I'll, I'll, it's worth it because, the only reason I brought it in was because I want to, I need to address it to people who aren't in, aren't here on Sunday. We're limiting the number of total questions I'm going to ask during the show because we're, we're looking for making enough room for a lot of other people to ask questions, you know, and that's the, um, you know, that's the, uh, you know, and we're, we have more variety right now than we've had ever, you know, like at the moment, like, so it's been a real, from our perspective, been a really big success. Um, but, uh, but that, that has had people wanting to ask more questions and finding other ways to do it. Just remember that, you know, it's, you know, when you put it into the, into the system, you know, we, we get to see it we get to see what you're doing. <laughs> so, so anyway, so that may, that may impact how many of your questions make it through the system. So, so, um, so it's, that, that's the only thing I would, I would, I would probably pick one or the other. Um, by the way, we had a question yesterday, just to repeat, if you do decide you want to vote on questions and if you want to, um, you know, ask those questions within the system, uh, go to officehours.global and sign up. It says join us. You can sign up. You'll start getting an email and the, the email will give you links to get into Discord and into Makana and all those other things. So you can, that's, that's the way to get in to, to be able to vote on the questions. But 
it's really great to just have a convenient way to just throw the questions in and we get them in usually within a day um, if they're you know if they're if they're pertinent to our to our conversation all right there you go that's the final word let's go to the next question Lois Richter in Davis, California, asking, years ago, the Windows OS had thousands of colors while the Mac OS had millions of colors. So if I sent the same image to both, the Mac user saw much more detail than the Windows user. Is this still the case? Courtney, set it straight. No, uh, they have evolved over the years. You know, there was a time when Windows had 16 colors and Mac had two, black and white. Uh, you know, when the first Macs came out, they were only in black and white. And Windows had CGA, which had all of four bits to determine color. So you had <laughs> 16 colors. Uh, but they've all evolved now to uh, 24, 32-bit color, or 444 four color and an alpha channel. So all the video cards now support uh, millions and millions of colors uh, uh, to your delight. But, you know, sending those, there are different restrictions on web colors versus, uh, you know, video colors, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, they're both quite capable of displaying the full gamut. Alex. So kind of. <laughs> so um, the support for HDR on all the Apple hardware is significantly better than Windows or Android. And it's just because Apple was willing to pay for it, um, pay the licensing for it and do and put a lot more into it. So uh, the, you know, supporting of vision um, specifically is is much more supported on the Mac platform than the Windows or Android platforms. And it's just money. You know, like they just didn't want to spend it per user. And so, um, and Apple was willing to, to show off. <laughs> so, so they've been, Apple's been supporting that for the last five or six years. And it's still kind of, kind of sprinkled through the Windows and Android platform. So that it's, it's mostly that way, mostly the same colors. And for the average person, probably the same. Um, but, but the color support is much better on, on the Mac. <laughs> Let's go to the next, oh, next question. Yeah. Next question, Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana asked, what do you say to a high school teacher who is overwhelmed on making purchases for AV production? The budget is $50,000. He wants a kit to do remotes as well as a decent in-class studio setup. He was told that Blackmagic design products are good and has also heard about NDI. Well, he's got a long way to go to, I think, learn. Alex, what do you think? Uh, I think that you could do something. He should contact us or start asking questions about what he wants to do. In fact, we should, you know, I'd probably build a whole second hour lab if, if he wants to come on and we would sit there and talk about it. Um, I, I would, uh, I would highly recommend the, I would use the black magic mostly because it's just going to be less trouble over time. Um, and so, uh, but I think that for $50,000, you could build a really nice kit that is, that is pretty souped up with some, you know, with, you know, um, with a series of computers that I do a present because I started teaching classes remotely for, um, about almost 15 years ago. Uh, I've kind of built a system that works really well that would fit way under $50,000, <laughs> you know, and, and look and does, and does a really, really good job, um, of, of teaching. Um, but it is a stack of Mac minis and, a and, a you know, an ATEM and, uh, my Telestrator and, you know, all the other things that are, that are there. Uh, make it a great classroom experience, and um, and then you'd still have money for a remote kit. So I don't think that that would be. I, I think fifty thousand dollars would be fine. I think that the um, the ecosystem is is pretty strong. Uh, you could again, you could probably do it in software, though. I think that it's just more quirky than than just having something that is limited but does exactly what you need it to do for for a classroom experience. 
Jeffrey Powers. For $50,000, uh, you should put in the budget uh, somebody that will actually help you put something like that together. I think it, it really depends on you know, this teacher's ability to comprehend the knowledge uh, of how to put it all together and keep it running because, you know, he, you could give them all the parts or him or her all the parts and then they try to put it together and they're, they're successful at it, but it takes them a long time to, to get that together. And then they're, and then they get through a, two or three classes and then they're running into this problem or that problem. So that might be the best thing to do in this case. Uh, and yeah, uh, that way they also have somebody that will come in if there is a problem, if they cannot figure out this solution. Courtney. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Whoops, you're muted. Sorry, I think black magic is a good way to go uh, because there's so much vertical integration and they cover so many uh, uh, different parts of production. They have editing software, they have color correction software, they have cameras, they have switchers, they have uh, uh, routers, uh, they have all the parts of a good production studio. Uh, and it's all vertically integrated with uh, software control that crosses over all of those types. All of those different switchers can use the same software control, even and they can buy whatever switcher level they can afford and start off with an ATM Mini and move their way up to a Constellation if they need to. Uh, and it all uh, maintains the same interface and the same uh, software control across the board. They also have lots of audio with Fairlight. They have, you know, like I said, color correction all the way through production. So I think it's a good way to go. And it's one of the cheapest ways to go these days. Anywhere else, if you put together a collection of like Ross or any of the other switchers, um, you know, Grass Valley, small switchers, et cetera, they don't have the, all of that vertical integration between cameras, switchers, hardware, and post-production. Alex. And if, uh, if this high school teacher wants to do this, we will either bring them onto the show or we'll talk to them in after hours and we will help them design it and support it. We're here every day to answer questions and we will jump and they can jump into after hours and ask us questions and schedule time. Education is such a huge thing to what, I, you know, the reason I got into this was to do education. So any high school teacher that has a budget of $50,000 and wants to figure it out, you don't have to pay me to help you figure this out. And we will, we will give you the breakdown of, of what it takes to put it together. We'll be there to call when you're trying to figure it out. We want to see, we want to see teachers be super successful at this because I think it's the future and we need people to help us prove that. So um, definitely uh, Roscoe, if they, if they want to reach out to me um, sp specifically, when you're a teacher and you're putting together a kit, I'm here to help. <laughs> That's why this whole system exists. So anyway, so anyway, yeah. Touched a passion point. Uh, Guy Cochran. Yeah, exactly. Pa passion is where it's at. I mean, you want to you light a spark in these kids. And so giving them the gear to produce a result is, is you don't want to make it so difficult for them to, to figure out ISO and all these aperture, all these little nuances and LUTs and things like that. You want them to get going. And uh, one video that I saw that inspired me recently was one by a company called Skyglass. And what they allow you to do is use a phone, but uh, to shoot, but also use the cloud and uh, virtual background. So Skyglass, we we did a hit at their NAB booth. It's it's incredible what these kids are doing with this software. I mean, to to put in these virtual backdrops and these virtual worlds 
without a real green screen. It's doing the, you know, Snapchat AR type uh, cutouts and things like that. But the quality is just like mind blowing. So we've done a lot of these, these uh, for schools at our local high school, which is a couple thousand feet away from me. Uh, we installed vMix over there. So vMix is a nice way to go depending on wh where you want to go. Do you want to do it for morning announcements? Because there's two sides. So we got them on the sports side as well, where we help them with uh, some Teradek products, which was not the, the big bolts or anything like that, but just the iPads. So they were able to buy a, multiple iPads. And this is the point is how much of that do you want? So if kids break these things or if you want multiple kids checking them out at the same time that they have access, that they can actually use these things, you know, four at a time and go out and do these hits and be able to come back and not one expensive camera and it breaks. And now all of a sudden you're out of the game because you, you only had one, you only fit the budget for one of the things. So I would rather see more iOS devices. And then of course, audio and lighting, you definitely want to, you know, carve out a budget for that as well. Alex, do you want to do a follow-up? Yeah, the only thing I'll say is about with, with high school students is I used to teach a visual effects class at a high school, and um, I didn't pull any punches. I taught them exactly what we did at ILM, and I was amazed at how quickly they'll pick it up. <laughs> like, so so if you do something fun, they'll pick it up. And we were talking about, like, building your own gr green screen keyers from scratch and shake and and doing, uh, you know, um, uh, photogrammetry and 360 and 3D modeling all in a week. And it, they just absorbed it. And so you, you don't want to pull too many punches with your kids because they actually can acquire the information about 10 times faster than the teacher can. So you just want to figure out ways to empower them to be part of that system. Next question. Eddie Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida has a question. Thoughts on the warm audio WA87R2. Is it an affordable uh, U87 for vocals? And there is a link to it. Mitchell? Uh, you know, it looks like it. I mean, it has a big uh, capsule in it. Does it sound like it? I can't tell you because I don't have that plus my real U87 behind me. My, I guess my inclination is it takes a lot to be a very precisely built and German-engineered um, uh, microphone like the U87. I'm not sure that Warm can accomplish that. But let's say they get 70% of the way there. Um, would you use it then? Yeah, I probably would. I think the money saved could be better spent somewhere else. Courtney? Well, I think the Stellar X2 does a pretty good job for a lot cheaper. This this uh, uh, warm audio is designed to look like the U87 and, you know, even down to the little wooden box that it comes in, which you're going to put up on the shelf after you open it up and put it out to use it. Um, but it's, it's similarly designed, except it has uh, modern electronics, FETs, but it does have a, uh, a Japanese-built transformer in there, which the uh, Stellar X2 line, which also is designed to mimic the sound of the Neumanns, uh, doesn't have. So there's that difference. I haven't listened to it, so I haven't heard it, but it is 700 bucks, so you can get two of the Stellar X2s uh, and a half <laughs> and a mixer for the price of one of these warm audio uh, duplicates of the U87. The reason the U87 is so expensive is because they're, um, you know, they have a certain cachet to them. Uh, they're requested by a lot of uh, artists who insist on them. So uh, that drives the price up considerably, and the fact that they are made in Germany, uh, you know, so handcrafted, each one's handcrafted, makes them a lot more expensive. Guy? Yeah, we were a dealer for warm audio, and I excitedly got the wa-47 and the the 87 and couldn't wait to get home and, and play with them and uh unbox them hooked them into my mix pre and i was sorely disappointed so it's 
yeah, it was kind of sad because I was looking forward to promoting a $699 microphone that was, you know, the equivalent of a $3,500 or $3,600 microphone. And it just, it wasn't there in my ears. Uh, Shep's to me would be just more natural, cleaner sound. There is a ton of reviews though. I mean, the people on Sweetwater seem to love these mics and maybe I'm just missing it. Maybe they're, they're meant more for, for loud vocals and for guitars, like some of the videos that they have. But to my ears with my own voice and listening to, you know, 416s and Shep's, uh, all these high-end microphones, I just, I, I was really disappointed. Mitchell? Yeah, it's interesting to hear what Guy just said because just because it has the same size uh, capsule in it as maybe the U87 uh, doesn't mean that it's going to sound the same. And the electronics are very specific to the uh, device. Also, U87s are have uh, gone through a number of changes over the years. I've got like one of the originals, uh, but the I guess the most current is the U87AI. I believe that's what it is. And it has updated electronics in it. So even a new U87 may sound different than an old U87. I will opine on this question only because I do this all day, every day, most of the time. Uh, you're seeing me on the Sennheiser MKH 416, which is my on-air mic for the show and other things. When I actually do voiceover work here at the same desk, I sneak in my TLM 103. And the reason I do that is as a performer, they have different performance characteristics. I can be far more subtle in my performance with the TLM 103 because of its sensitivity and ultimate low noise. It's not that the Sennheiser isn't a really good mic. They're both top of the line expensive microphones. They are just different. So to me, when somebody says, this clone is just like that other thing, maybe, but it might be those little things. It might be the durability. It might be the responsiveness. It's the difference between driving a serious performance car and driving one that has the same size engine and the same transmission but isn't tuned up in all of its aspects to do that job. I'm not saying any of the other ones aren't good and that you have to spend a lot of money. I'm just saying I have noticed the difference. Even between two top-end things, I end up performing differently on one mic than the other because it can read the performance more acutely than on the other mic. It's just an interesting thing that I've learned after doing voiceover for a long, long time. Next question. Dan Shaw from Columbus, Ohio. I'll be recording a small event with 25 people indoors and need two mic, present, uh, mic two presenters. Considering I am a one-man crew, any red flags or thoughts to using a Hollyland Lark Max or a Rode Wireless Lav mic setup? Jeffrey Powers. Four words. Direct line of sight. If uh, and it depends on if you are how far the camera is away, how far the receiver is away from the transmitters. Uh, if you are in the back of the room, uh, the farther you get, the uh, the more chance of the breakup to happen. And if they're turning around to like draw on a whiteboard or anything like that, and that uh, transmitter is blocked even by the body, you could get cutouts from there. Uh, so it's best to try and have it where the, the transmitter and receiver are seeing the same things. Uh, if you have if you have the ability, if there's like a PA on a stick type thing where you could actually plug in the uh, the device through there, then I would highly recommend it unless you're planning to have both because this is a recording, not a stream. Uh, at least from what I understand, if you're planning to have two separate channels to do uh, mixing after the fact, uh, then that you could 
technically still do it if you did a right-left thing, but you'd have to put a little bit of thought into it if you decided to do that. But I would definitely have uh, have something on the mixing board recording that as well, as well as uh, the cameras. I don't know how many cameras you're going to have on there. So if you have one camera that's collecting the uh, the lavaliers and another camera that has a boom microphone to it, at least you'll have some audio to mix with through the things. And I know that gets a little bit complicated, but at the end of the day, if you have mm -hmm. audio versus not having audio, then that's the important thing. Uh, Alex. Think hard about renting mics. Um, if you're doing a, a live event, uh, these wireless mics are great for VOD. Um, they're not really that great for live. Um, and the reason for that is exactly what Jeffrey said, Point, line of direct, um, you know, direct line of sight. When they lose that, they lose uh, connectivity really quickly. So I would, I would really not recommend these for live if you can avoid it, um, especially if it matters and you're in front of a lot of people, um, you know, and you can't have anywhere to cut away. I just wouldn't use them. Like, like and I, I have a whole bunch of them, and I just wouldn't use these kinds of mics for a live, uh, a live broadcast that mattered. Mm -hmm. Courtney and Mitchell, we've got about 30 seconds. Mitchell, go. I'll make it quick. Um, I agree with Alex. I think that uh, unless you're using a high-quality, high-end uh, wireless mic, I would use it. And my first bet is I always go for a wire if I can get away with it. And Courtney. Another consideration is battery life. Remember, both the Rode and the Lark have built-in batteries that are rechargeable. And once they go dead, it's going to take an hour or so to recharge them. So in a live event, uh, you can't just throw new batteries in it right before the event starts. So if somebody's left a transmitter on or receiver on, it could be run down to halfway when your show starts, and there's no way to fix that. Guy, do you want to make a quick note? Yeah, consider hiring an actual sound guy if, you, if it's something that your reputation relies on. Otherwise, I like the Sennheiser Wireless with a Sankin uh, Cost 11D. Nice. Okay. We are getting close to the top of the hour here, so I wanted to note uh, the Squares TV Lab with Michael Forrest, Wednesdays, 9 o'clock a.m. Learn to integrate uh, and shoot the pro webcam, video pencil, and a bunch of other stuff. The Isadora Lab with L. Wilson Sparrow. Normally, it's on uh, after the show today. It's been moved to tomorrow, November 3rd at uh, 11 a.m. Pacific time, so that's coming up. An incredible opportunity to learn about all of that. And don't forget Friday's show. It's a lab on the migration. So tomorrow we're going to be looking at the update of how this entire change has taken place. Uh, it's been amazing. I mean, literally props to the hardware crew in the back end who have been tearing apart where office hours used to live, completely rebuilding it in another location. We have not missed a show. We have not missed a step. So there's a tremendous number of people. And if you want to understand exactly how they've been putting in the effort to make this show seamlessly appear across two platforms, tune in tomorrow. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. It's great to see you here for the second hour. We are talking commercials today, and there is a ton of stuff to talk about. Uh, I've been working on commercials for most of my career. Uh, I've worked in advertising, marketing, one way or another. And uh, somebody once asked me why, and he said, because that's where the money is. There's a tremendous number of dollars that are pushed into uh, promoting products and services in the world. And you know, it's a time now of all sorts of change across communications. Uh, but no matter how much changes, no matter how the fact that, you know, TV is kind of fading and now everything's moving to the web, there's still people who need to sell products and services and they need to promote that. 
And so even though things are switching and we're getting more on the web and more OTT or over the top cable and wireless, those are all a few a huge factor in driving sales. The initial reasons that advertising grew up the way they did are still out there. You've got to attract an audience. You've got to end up building your business and being able to market your products and services successfully. And in the beginning, when television particularly rose up, even before that radio and, and print's been around for a long time, but TV specifically really kind of changed the game. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to show you a couple of commercials that we produced for broadcast television. Uh, and I'm going to make some points about not necessarily just broadcast because broadcast really is not as big a driver as what's happening on the web and over the top and these kind of things. Uh, one of these two is, is kind of an imaging spot and the other is more a branding spot. Oh, that's a branding spot. The other one is a hardcore sales spot because let's face it, the bottom line of doing a commercial is that you're probably going to want to either promote a product or sell a product. And so you've got to be aware of what goes into commercials that give it a chance for successfully driving economic results. That's its fundamental thing. And so I'm going to go into my little side presentation here. There are not too many of them. The first one we're going to be talking about is a concept called the inverted pyramid. Uh, this was taught to me really early in the process, and this has to do with broadcast commercials and how they work. The biggest part of that is this. In the expense of getting results, the production of the ad, how much you spend on making the ad, is very minor compared to the amount of money spent on media. Let's take something like a Super Bowl ad, right? They may be spending $50 million in time buy to get that new product in front of that huge an audience, well, that's going to justify maybe a million dollars in, in expense for the production of it. On the smaller scale, on local and things like that, it's the same kind of thing. You don't want to spend more than you have a chance. It is a risk-based environment. So this is how it works. You're going to reach a lot of people in the old broadcast days, and you're going to get a percentage of them, maybe one, two, three percent, if you're lucky, to respond and buy the products. And that math has to work out to make it important. We used to do a lot of testing and metrics based on this. We really did want to look at what people were responding to. So there's a lot of statistical studies done on things like reach and frequency. Uh, those are long established measures in the broadcast industry. Reach is how many impressions you're generating out there overall. Frequency is how many times a target, a person watching, will see your ad. Because most people don't react the first or second or third time they see it. They need to be convinced that it's a safe product and it's the right way to go for them. These are the old ad targets. It used to be simpler when I was starting in the game because TV advertising was kind of the big gun. Radio had been around for a long time, but it drives, doesn't drive anywhere near as much sales as TV did. And print was another possibility. Boy, has this changed because now we're in this new environment where there's just so much clutter out there. We've got all sorts of things. We've got over the top on the upper right. We've got all sorts of web services. We've got people watching on phones and watches. It's just fragmented and it's harder to work into this stuff than it ever was before because you're targeting every potential digital device on the planet. So figuring out where to put your ad, how to, how to send it out becomes more difficult than ever before. And now, of course, it's changed from the old advertising model 
to where we're now in something where everything is tracked. And I have that little TMI up there because that stands for me for too much information. It is so much harder for us and the media buyers we work with to try to figure out what's an efficient way to get product advertising in front of people now because there's just so much fragmentation out there. Uh, I will note the bottom part of that. Costs of production and placement are very much lower than they've ever been before. But so are the audience sizes compared to broadcast. Everybody was coming to TV in their living rooms before. Now their time is all fragmented. They're spending times on their watches and, and phones and playing video games and doing everything else. Very quickly, uh, when you're thinking about creating an ad, this is kind of where we used to start. Uh, we'd look at our stakeholders. Who are they? The client. They're going to give you a project brief. This is what I'm trying to do. This is how much money I have to spend. There's usually an agency involved, and that's a client rep to kind of interface between the client themselves and the agency so it doesn't get too confused. And then there's usually a team of creatives at the agency who are doing the actual work of producing the app. Also, that marketing team, which maybe at the agency may be outside, there's usually a media buyer involved, and that person is the one who's responsible for placing the ads out so that they will be effective. The editor, and that's what we're going to be talking about at least a little part today, about how to make these ads successful. The editor is working with both the agency types and also with the stations and websites to get the deliverables right. Now, I gave you that inverted pyramid up front. Here's what I think is the modern version of it, and this is what makes it so tough. Instead of it being as simple as the media buy, it's now figuring out how to find the eyeballs to get your product succeeding out in the market. And so the effort needed for creating content, which is now something I can do here on my laptop without much expense at all, is still tiny in comparison with figuring out how to get it in front of the right kind of people. I am very quickly going to go through this just as fast as I possibly can because I want to note some of these things out here. The why, particularly up in the top part of this, why are you doing the ad? That has to do with targeting. And we used to have a little document called a treatment which says, who am I trying to reach and what am I trying to get done? Defining the target audience is critical if you want the ad to be successful. Because if you don't know who you're talking to, you don't know how to talk to them. All these little things, and I'm not going to go through each and every one, but, but look down. You're going to also see there's reviews at every stage. It used to take us a lot of time to do an average ad, even for a local client, because we're revising, we're focus grouping and testing, trying to make this thing all happen. We're eventually going to get to approvals, eventually get to distribution. We're finally able to start of get this out to the people who want to watch it. But all that stuff was a huge part of that. Let's get out of slides. And I am going to move some things off my screen so I don't expose parts of the office hours system. And I'm going to bring over some ads. And let's watch them. Um, I believe, yeah, here we go. Here's the first one. Let me do a screen share. Stand by. Okay, and I need to click there and there. And uh, let's see, share. Oh, wait a second, I have to optimize there and hit share. All right, sorry about all that confusion. You should be able to see my blank screen now. I'm going to play the first ad of two that I want to show you that we're going to be talking about in this. I'm just going to let it roll. We're all pretty lucky to be able to live here in this amazing place we call home. Every time you visit the NAP, you help us help nature. 
The Nats research helps us understand the natural world so nature can stay healthy today and for future generations. Our little corner of the world is one of the most interesting places in the world. That's why every day we're here for nature. Okay, that's a 30-second ad we produced uh, just about two months ago for the NAT, which is the Natural History Museum here in San Diego. And I'll just point out a few things about it very quickly. Uh, this is a branding type of spot. I'm going to turn it on the audio really, really low. Uh, basically, we're just trying to make an impression. The thing is here. You can come to it. Here's what you'll see. This is the kind of thing that we do. It is to establish in the minds of the audience what's available to them. This is very different than the next ad I'm going to show you, which is very much a we want to generate sales ad. And that is a different function. And because it's a different function, the ad is constructed very differently. So let me take this one out of here and pop over to us. Not that one. Oh, it's gone away from me. So let me just pop it up here uh, into QuickTime. Here we go. This is the one from my desktop, and I'm going to drop it on QuickTime as soon as my eye. There we go. Okay, here's the second ad. This is a traditional retail type that we did for a, a chain of restaurants in Colorado not too long ago. We do it better. Our harvest chop for only eleven ninety nine at chop5.com. We do it better. So a very different feeling on this. This is designed for one thing and one thing only, and that is to drive bodies into the door to buy the products that they're selling. Uh, you will see a lot more graphic orientation. In this case, we didn't even use a voiceover or anything like that. Let me turn it way down and, and just talk about a couple of things that are going on in there. Lots of big things. It doesn't worry about whether or not somebody has the time to listen to a voiceover. Everything is visual. We're trying to make the salads look as, as positive as possible. This was going into an environment where um, it's in Colorado towns, and some of their restaurants are actually on college campuses. So it was really important to kind of give out the health branding thing. And as I go through the, you know, this is a way to get a quick, healthy meal uh, Colorado is a very active kind of a, a town, and um, not town, but a, a, an environment where a lot of people are outdoors. Let me turn that off, and I'm going to get over here to just a second. Next thing I'm going to do is get Final Cut up, and we're going to actually look at the construction of these and dive into them. And this is where the lab part of this whole thing starts. Um, this is how we built them, what we did. And I'm going to start, um, let me start back with the old demo for the NAT. So this was the first ad you saw, and I'm specifically looking to uh, show you kind of where it started. This is a typical timeline for me. This is for where that ad came from. The original wasn't doing an ad. The original piece was doing this, uh, this longer form thing, and I'm going to play it back a little bit here. Hopefully you can hear that. Let's start with this simple observation. We're all pretty lucky, aren't we? to be able to live here in this amazing place that we call home. Our little corner of the world, San Diego and the Baja Peninsula, 
is one of the most interesting places in the world. With a level of biodiversity... So it was a long-form project. It ended up being about two and a half minutes. It was for playback in their theater at the Nat. And that was the beginning kind of brief. Then they came and said, we also need a commercial. Can we adapt that longer form work into the shorter form thing? And we said, of course we can. Uh, That would be exciting. So we pulled the best scenes of that and turned it into this. We're all pretty lucky to be able to live here in this amazing place we call home. As you can see, scenes are much shorter. We're under the tyranny now of a commercial. And unlike web ads, commercials need to be 30 seconds, period. You do not get extra frames past that. If it's 30 seconds and three frames, you'll get a, you'll get a QC hit from the broadcast network because they're working on those kind of time frames. And there's no, no secondary chance. You've got to get things right. So it's a very rigid set of formats. Um, this went through a whole bunch of changes as we went through the process of trying to figure out what was the messaging going to be? How are we going to get it done? Um, let's see. What else did I want to say about this? Um, yeah, um, I, I think that's it. And, and so anybody has any questions about the, the reason that you want to do that kind of branding spot where it goes? Uh, I'm going to turn next to the chop five spot because it's actually more interesting to break it down. I want to show you how we started out the pitch string out. This is typical of advertising as well. If you look at my timeline here, there's tons of stuff going on. This was for the pitch meeting that actually got this sold for us. And it'll show you how many evolutions the project took as we tried to narrow down what we were going to do. This original idea looked nothing like the spot that ended up. In fact, the original idea was more an outdoor an outdoor kind of same basic idea. We're going to be doing text only, but this is not at all like the spot ended up being. The other thing was we did test after test of trying to figure out the right environment. Here's Alt Music 1. And that was one of the things they got to pick from. But if they didn't like that, here's Alt 2. So in the pitch meeting, trying to figure out where we were going and what we were doing, this is typical. You're saying, do you like it this way? Do you like it this way? We eventually ended up figuring out everybody ended up really liking that piece of music that's in the final one. But now we're going through alternate ideas. We're still sitting around a conference table trying to figure out how to target this ad correctly. So these are all just different text blocks to try to figure out what is the right approach. And we're going to take these out eventually and test them. I mean, all the people in the internal will have meetings about which ones you like best. You know, is is this approach, are these messaging moments the best ones? I mean, literally, we're doing eight nine, ten versions of the same spot, tying to dial in, all with the same music, all with the same everything else. But what factors do we put in this version? I'm I'm just clicking through. You can just see it's over and over again. What's the best way to do this stuff? And the reason we're doing all of this, and I think I can, at least for a moment here, let's see if there's anything else. Well, here's, you know, here's, oh, okay. So we do all those at the pitch meeting. 
Now we're trying to decide how many spots are we actually going to make to go into the campaign because you want to have more spots than just one. You know, it's it, the one you see on TV might have been one of six or 10 or 15. And in fact, here's something that you typically have to do. And this is why the media buy and the rest of those things are so important. This is the spot that I think actually ran first in the campaign. But you will notice at the end of this, in fact, if you notice on the slate, it says uh, Salad Seekers 1079. Why is that? The last thing in this spot is Harvest Chop. Now, this is the insert that tells, this is the sales part of the message here. Let me just play this part. Now, I'm a little too early. Sorry about that. Order our Harvest Chop for only 1079 at chop5.com. So 1079 is the price in this particular use case. But if they're going into, for example, the college thing where um, that's running in a market where... Order our Harvest Chop for only eleven forty nine at Chop... The price is different. The point is... You, you're often doing multiple versions at different price points, multiple versions for different communities, multiple versions that have tags for different areas, particularly somebody who owns uh, a lot of different a lot of different restaurants at different things. Then they also say, okay, at this time of the year, well, maybe we want to have this other kind of salad featured rather than the Harvest Shop. We'll do a feature on something else. I think these are all the same. Oh, these are different price points. You're starting to get a sense of the complexity of producing ads and all the things you need to think about in order for people to understand um, why ads take so long, why they cost so much money, and why uh, it is a very kind of, it, it's a scientific process. And the reason is because of that inverted pyramid. You're risking a lot of money that's going to be spent ephemerally on getting a message out to people. If you don't do that as efficiently and as well-researched as you can, you may be spending that money and getting no results back off on it. So it's a, it's a tougher game than most people think just watching it from the outside. All right. I think that's all I had to really uh, go for the pre. Does anybody have any questions? Let me get this off my screen. I've stopped sharing. And uh, let me get the other... There we go. Now I'm back to the regular office hours interface. Uh, yeah, Mitch wanted to ask some questions. Mitch? Well, I, I wouldn't want to get into a ruthless review because I think they're both quite good. Um, I love the lyrical feeling of the uh, the, the nature spot. Um, I thought that was so nicely done and so pretty. And I could see that on National Geographic, no problem, looking just like everything else that's on there. Uh, the local retails uh, in your face spot, Brilliant use of music, by the way. I, uh, I would, I would, I think that the, sometimes that can be the best part of a spot, no matter what you're showing. Was that the music is compelling and fun? Uh, then it, 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 it uh, communicates such a great emotion uh, through to it. The challenge. When I found that there were high fives all over the place, and the next day everybody just fell in love yeah. with it, which is why on that timeline you saw there were twenty-five, or not twenty-five, but there were probably nine versions of that. And then four other options, just in case the key decision maker said, you know, I like everything but the music. I'm not so happy with that music. You've got it's, to have an alternative. It's <laughs> always subjective. It's not, but it's sometimes totally. it's a it's a home run, and you definitely hit a home run there. The only thing I was interested in is that uh, generally when I'm doing retail local spots, and I know that we're sometimes uh, bottom dwellers when it comes to the production world 
of producing those spots because we don't all have New York and L.A. budgets. Um, we have to do things that move the needle, I guess is the best term to use. And um, I didn't see a call to action on that. And I'm sure you thought about that quite a bit, call to action and somebody actually enjoying the uh, the salad chop because we saw the prep, but we didn't see the final result of it. I'm curious why you didn't uh, uh, sell that as part of the call to action. At because the end of it. it is a hard sell, but it's also branding. They were relatively new to the market. These were ads were used to kind of warm the edge here as they're opening up a new chopped salad in a particular community. So what they wanted to do was get into the See, this is that creative brief at the top. The first thing on that list was brand chop five for this market. Make it comfortable and then show them something that they didn't have seen before. There are no other salad restaurants that are kind of fast food oriented. Again, they go in things like um, like college dining hall areas where it's kind of a captive audience that they think is going to be already appealing to that kind of eater. So uh, we weren't doing the entire job. You're, you're absolutely right. If it had been a generic broadcast commercial for a whole market, a call, a, a different kind of call to action, come in today or something like that, they just assumed, and it seemed to work out that way, that the price points and the, the newness of that concept would do the job. Yeah, the music sold it to me. I mean, I'm I'm a, I'm a customer already, and I don't even know where to find one. Um, <laughs> the other thing is, what's interesting is that um, you said earlier on about uh, making the buy and uh, things like that. And there's a thing called reach and frequency, which I, I know I'm preaching to the choir when I'm talking to you about that. But yeah. the thing of it is, there is a science to it. It is it is mathematics. There is a science to picking it out, and basically, it means that you have to buy enough spots on the right stations. Uh, if, if you're doing stations or if it's that Google AdWords or whatever, that can move the needle and how many spots you have to, you can calculate that. You can calculate, I have to buy 200 spots on Nat Geo to, uh, to, to sell this and reach 80% of my audience. And that's the area that's a tough sell uh, to the clients because uh, clients don't always understand. They think that if you run two ads, that people are going to go nuts and uh, buy their product. But like anything else, uh, at, when it's all said and done and the production is done, um, do you have meetings with people uh, to determine how far you move the needle and whether you need to spend more money on broadcast or uh, social media, things like that? Yeah, and it's the reason I had it. Whoops, wrong slide. The reason I had it in this slide as reach and frequency and blew up there, it is critical. It And we always worked with actual media buyers. This is their coin of the realm. Um most of the time, media buyers understand all the demographic and psychographic profiling of a market to say the most efficient dollars you can spend is these three stations, uh, billboards in this area. I mean, they, they're really a media buyer has a pretty broad range of skills. They have to understand all the different ways to do it. Now, in the current thinking, that's going to be what websites are going to attract the right kind of people? Where should we put your adjacencies? Um, do we do it on a local Facebook um, adjacency? And can we buy a particularly targeted geographic area? I will say it has gotten so much more sophisticated. It's also gotten so much more complicated to try to figure out how every ad dollar should be spent to try to bring people to your product that we could we could talk for 10 shows about that and not even scratch the surface. We should bring a media buyer on at some time. It's, it's an it astonishing cool. 
thing in and, this and world. And then my last question, and pardon me for asking it, but no, it no. has such a big uh, effect on, especially on a local retail ad. Generally, what's the budget for doing these things? I mean, I guess what that budget was, but what generally seems to move the needle properly in terms of production. Yeah, sadly, uh, this kind of sophistication uh, in terms of doing enough research to understand the market you're trying to get, you, you're really looking for clients that have multiple locations. You, you generally don't, you generally can't do this for a mom and pop that's got a single location and they're trying to figure out how to market. Uh, you know, they have to build themselves up to the point where they can be a little sophisticated because even things like the Chop 5, I mean, there were four of us on uh, on the team working on the ads there were um, there was an agency involved. They have, I think, six or eight locations, and that's kind of the minimum thing that you want to get into if you're if you're trying to play the game at the level of of being effective with your advertising. Because you know, there's one set of things you do to get from your single concept to three or four of them in a market. Then the next hurdle is to get to six to ten of them, and maybe you're going to start looking at bringing in more people to run them. So you got either franchising or there's a whole bunch of stuff on the back end of growing a business. And remember, marketing overall, advertising is a subsection of that. And broadcast advertising or these kind of things, media-based advertising is a whole subset of that. So there's a limit as to, you know, as to what the budgets allow. Uh, it's just. Do you ever yeah, hit figuring, them with a scare you number? Say, hey, it's going to cost about this much to get this uh, idea executed. You know, here's the thing, Mitch, and I, I think that some people are just excited. They've had a concept. It's been out there for a while. They've grown to a certain level. They know based on not only their own feelings, but talking to their bankers and their accountants and everybody else that the market, they have a good enough product. The market is responding to it well. We want to expand. So they will come up with financing and money to expand if they think there's a realistic chance that we can grow from 10 stores to 30 stores and then from 30 stores toward 100 stores. When I started with PetSmart back in the early days, they had 53 stores. And when we left them, they had 1,290 or something like that all across the country. And we just watched them continue to refine their operations in so many areas. And that was great for my business because they needed all sorts of video support as they went out there. You know, we did weird little videos like they're going to open a PetSmart in some little town and the, the um, municipal board is concerned about clogging up the sewers with dog hair. So you wanted a whole video. I did a video once about how they filter all of that grooming operation stuff out before it gets into the water return. I mean, think of the number of things that you have to communicate. And video is an extraordinary tool for communicating. We're looking at this one little piece of it, commercials and marketing, but there's just so much that it can do. Uh, Courtney? Yeah, you had a very nice breakdown of the creative side, the ad buy, and the marketing end of commercials. I also have worked in commercials for most of my career. Uh, it's a very lucrative business. I'll point that out. I've worked mainly in production, which doesn't have to do with the creative, the marketing, the ad buys, that end. That's ad agency end of the commercial business. I worked in production. So if you work in production, let's say you're a cameraman or sound mixer, a gaffer, a lighting technician, etc., um, it can be a very lucrative business, and I worked in it uh, as opposed to 
a few feature films and some television shows, but uh, the most of my bread and butter came from uh, national or international commercials. And it's a, it's kind of a different uh, situation. That upside down pyramid. There's uh, you got to be. There's a lot of rules. There's a lot of uh, layers of production oh, when yeah. you're in in production on a television commercial. There's the uh, on set. You will have the client. Then you will have the ad agency who's in charge of the creative who wrote the spot and wants to execute it. Then they will hire a production company uh, once they have approval of the client for the spot. They will farm it out to several production companies who will bid on it and the production companies and the individual directors that they like and those production companies will be bidding will do storyboards directors boards and bid on them and then they will grant one of those production companies the production then they will go into production uh and it's uh, you know it we have you know full-size crews the same as you'd see on a feature film on a lot of television national television commercials and then you shoot that commercial for a couple of days, and then it goes back into post-production, uh, which is sometimes controlled by a third party. So on the set, you have to be very careful because you have the client, you have the agency, and you have the director that you're working under as a technician. Uh, so you're responsible for the director, and you have to be careful of what you say because you don't want to say anything that's going to upset the client or the agency. <laughs> So it's like a, like a little bit of a minefield out there working on commercials. The pay is better than working on theatrical features or television, I will point out. So um, if you're in it to uh, make a lot of money, that's a good place to start. The, also, the uh, schedules are nice if you're working in production because a commercial typically takes you know one or two days to shoot. Um, some commercials, if it's a whole string of commercials, you know, the, where they're shooting in different locations, you know, it can take a week. But um, your schedule is very flexible, so you can uh, have time off, you can book something, and if you turn something down, it's not the end of your career uh, because you'll never work with that director again. You just say, hey, I'm booked, and they'll come back to you if they're, uh, you know, faithful to you, if that director is faithful to you. Uh, you don't have to worry about, uh, you know, taking a project or figuring out where your next project is coming from because uh, there's an endless flow of those kinds of things. Um, that's basically the stuff that I wanted to cover. It is uh, a, a different situation than uh, television or theatrical work, although you do work with a lot of the same people. A lot of the directors that I worked with were feature directors, a lot of the actors, a lot of the uh, uh, production personnel, the cinematographers were top-name cinematographers. So you do get a chance to expose yourself to the really high end of the uh, entertainment market in doing uh, national television commercials. So it's a, it's a good place to get your feet wet. Absolutely. Um, oh, Mitchell, do you have a follow-up? Just a real quick. Um, it used to be that when you finished a spot, you handed them a master tape and a VHS copy, and you were done with deliverables. How do you uh, deal with deliverables now, Bill? Oh, it's such a it, – it's become such a problem. And you know what? It, that's something that utterly changed, at least for me, when the pandemic hit. Literally before that um, – okay, there's two ways. Spot distribution, all the formats, you never know where things are going. You've got broadcast networks. You've got something. So there are services like Extreme Reach and other things. You send them a master tape that has the spot or spots along with media instructions, ISCII codes, those are the things that uh, automated systems use to decide what spot runs next. Um, 
all of those things go to a company like Streamreach, and they take care of doing all the dubs. I have for many years done most of them myself, and it was pre-pandemic awfully difficult. I used to have to make 15 or 20 separate versions of each spot because this one needed uh, standard stereo. This one needed to go out the actual dub to the station for a small market that was important to the client on three-quarter inch in mono. And all those versions of the spots had to be coordinated and sent out. When, when the pandemic hit, I had one of my clients, um, the, the local credit union, uh, Mission Fed, they needed to get emergency information out to the public. They were talking about um, helping people financially during that. And, and so we had like a week to turn around a spot with the CEO talking to the market. And I took a chance and I said, we're locking down. People can't go anywhere. I'm going to put a high-res version of this on my Vimeo Pro account. Anybody, if you can grab it from there, just grab it from there. I had never had one of those stations except a standard Vimeo thing. Suddenly, 85% of my distribution network said, yeah, we got it. We made it work. It's fine. <laughs> because they just wanted to keep the time-by stuff flowing. And I learned a big lesson there. Now, there were some who would not. Things like the NBC affiliate said, no, you have to go through our, our internal uh, thing. That, you know, the spot that I uploaded to Atlanta then got played out over the over their internal network here in San Diego. It, it, it's just distribution of spots and the rest of that is is a tough nut to break. So uh, if anybody wants to know more about how to do that, talk to me about it. It's, it's complicated. Okay. I think that's everything. Uh, let's get to our questions. And our first question comes in from Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. Andy asks, uh, what scripting tool do you typically use when working with a client on commercials? It's giving me one of those weird answers. Doesn't really matter, and I'll tell you why. Uh, the writers that I work with, particularly one who's a Clio award-winning writer, is very good at what he does. These people are – you saw a lot of different versions of the spots. You wouldn't believe the, the text documents I get that are, that are Microsoft Word, and it's like headline, and there'll be – 23 headline variants, and they can change as little as switching one word, the order of one word. I mean, these craftspeople who work in advertising can be so specific about how every word has to be rhythmic and follow the next one exactly right. It's crazy. So I've had scripts sent to me in Microsoft Word. I've had them sent in um, the scripting program. What is the big screen something or other? Um, the one that the people write Hollywood. I will tell you one thing. There's two branches of scripting. One is Hollywood style scripting. That is for people who do movies. It's a very rigid format. There's also the two-column AV script. And 95% of the work that I've done in the advertising market comes in the form of two-column AV scripts. The left column is... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm looking at it. The left-hand column, if I'm looking at it, is uh, a description of what the shots will be, and the right-hand column is any voiceover or dialogue that takes place. So I used to build my scripts in FileMaker Pro, 
I had a system that allowed me to write two-column scripts really easily, revise them really easily. I could move things uh, in the right column versus the left column. And so I used that for many years. Um, I think some of those uh, screenwriter programs have two-column as an option. I would highly uh, advise it. But it doesn't have to be anything special. You just need to get the words down on paper in a way that they can understand them and then probably get that stuff out of there so you can put it on the storyboard, which is the next important part of the process. Next question. Dave Troutman from Edmonton, Canada asked, is it important to consider making different versions of ads to be played on different platforms? Is a TikTok message vastly different from a video streaming ad? My answer to that would be if the if the potential audience is different, then yeah, probably it should be. I mean, I, now sometimes the ad can work in multiple places. I will say that versioning, and you saw some of that with the different prices, two versions of exactly the same ad for two things. I have done ads in both vertical and horizontal. Maybe an ad is going on a vertical uh, screen next to, oh, in a mall kiosk, for example. And that's part of the buy is they're buying the local mall for uh, one of those restaurants. Um, so you have to be adaptable. You, you know, that's why you're working with an agency and working with a media buyer. They will tell you all the ad specifications, and then it's your job to adapt the ad into a way that suits that. So, yeah, I, I just say that everything is up in the air. You're trying to be as effective as possible, so you want to customize as much as possible. It's a lot of work, but it, it happens. Uh, next question. Peter Moore, Auckland, New Zealand, asking, New Zealand's health amusing way to get people to get a colon cancer screening. They even try to have a song about it. What are your thoughts? I actually saw that, and I thought it was really well done. You know, every that's the thing we should talk about is that that different audiences have different tolerances. I think different countries have different uh, senses of humor. I have seen ads that I didn't think were funny at all, and somebody else from a different background thought it was hysterical. So uh, that's part of that testing process that ads often go through to say – does this have the effect that you want it to have on the audience it will be played for? Something for, you know, if you're if you're playing it on a show that has mostly 50 plus as an audience, that ad may may need to be different to be effective than one that's going to be running on a show that has an audience primarily 18 to 34. Um Courtney yeah, the reason all the people in this New Zealand ad are so happy is because they don't have to go uh, through the uh, prep for a colonoscopy. That's why they're all <laughs> cheering. And they do the same thing in the United States. We have uh, Cola Guard commercials where they're singing a version of My Way, and it's like instead of having to do all that stuff for the colonoscopy, I did it my way. I told my doctor I'm not going to undergo that, and I'll just do this little screening that doesn't take near as much trouble, and you mail it in, and you don't have to deal with it all of that stuff. So, yeah, it's it's good, and that's what they're promoting. You know, the commercial is they found out that the the thing that, uh, as far as cancer prevention, the, the gold standard is the colonoscopy, but people hate the prep and hate, hate the embarrassment of going through it, and so they targeted all these advertisements about, you know, hey, you can do it in the privacy of your own home, and you don't have to interface with people, and you don't have to take a lot of funny drugs that uh, make you very uncomfortable for a day or two. Yeah, the internationalization thing is a big deal. Very famously, Chevy had a car called the Nova, and Nova in Spanish is no-go. So <laughs> that did not sell particularly well. I think they had to rebrand it for any Latin American market where that was a problem. So, yeah, that... 
it, it's, it's a question. Next question. Douglas Carmichael has a question. When is a composed musical score for a commercial better than stock music? Uh, let's start with Mitchell and go to Courtney. Mitchell? Um, my, my comment is that I started out as an audio guy. I was the guy that always had to pick the music out because mostly the client didn't have uh, the money to do a, uh, a composition. I would always say that a composition can be done directly to the finished video uh, much better than a stock piece. But I just had this magical touch, sorry, uh, that allowed me to pick a stock piece that acted like it was a composed piece for that. And uh, in the right circumstances, uh, stock music can work just fine if you're lucky enough to find one that fits perfectly. Courtney? Yeah, and these days on national commercials uh, for music, a lot of times they're using uh, uh, rock and roll hits from the 70s and 80s as a callback, and they'll license that music from the original uh, people, and they may produce a new version of that uh, hit song from the 70s or 80s or 90s for the spot. Uh, I remember it does take very deep pockets. I did commercials for Microsoft for Windows 95, uh, in Japan, and they hired the Rolling Stones to use Start Me Up. And I was in the room when they negotiated that contract. Uh, it was over $6 million just to use the sound, that, uh, you know, four bars of the, of the music. Yeah, we had Randy Bachman come into one of the conferences for PetSmart when they had a lot of stores. to. He did a custom version of Taking Care of Business, and there were lots of dollars involved in that. Alex? Uh, the composed music is always better. <laughs> like it's never, we're never going to tell someone that that oh, you could compose music, but we could find you something better as a stock, a stock, whatever. It's 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 always better. Um, it just costs more money. That's the disadvantage of it is that you're going to pay m money for it. I will say that having composers do your music is not near for a com commercial is not nearly as expensive as it sounds. So um, we have paid anywhere from, typically for most of the commercials that we've done, not buying somebody's song, but actually having somebody build something for it. So we finish, this, we finish the ad, we hand it to them, and, they, and as Mitch said, we, they build the music so that the hits are all just right and everything else. Sometimes we move our edit a little bit with them so that it goes to the bar and everything else. Um, and it has been, you know, it's it's amazing. It just feels great. Uh, and five to fifteen thousand dollars, like that's that's what we pay, you know, for that. Now that, that doesn't work for a local spot, you know, as far as cost goes, but it does, you know, for a for a, you know an uh, international release that's not a big number um, to do that. What we use for what I use for all the needle drop is epidemic sound, and the reason for that is that <clears throat> I get. I get multiple tracks, so they'll give you four or five different stems that you can then use to kind of rebuild what you want to do as you go through it. So you can, what's nice about that is you can do bridges where you have music and then it has to get lower and you can take some of the instruments actually out and let it be kind of low while you're, while there was all someone's talking and then come back up and then do all the other things and just bring it all, all that stuff. You can kind of mix it also it, they manage all of your rights for social. So if you're putting this on YouTube, you're not worried about having some kind of um, issue where, which you can invariably have with almost any other needle drop because someone else bought, bought, bought it um, and then they, the person who used it claimed their video on YouTube and then it makes it hard to claim again. It's just, it's just easier. Mitchell? Yeah, I just did a spot with uh, Soundstripe as the uh, music source, and they do exactly what Alex was talking about. You get the stems, the mix-outs, even the vocalizations and sound effects, 
and um, I went nuts. I just completely changed the score to fit the uh, the action directly, and it cost less than a hundred dollars. Yeah, that's pretty common nowadays. It's it's different than it used to be. It used to be that the the buyout music packages that I bought were pretty rigid, and you could use the thirty second spot or the sixty second spot, or maybe you get a four minute piece that you could cut up to do a longer narration kind of thing over. Um, now it's very common for you to get stems and individual instrument tracks and you to be able to go into your NLE and kind of repurpose the music a little bit. That that still isn't the same as having a composer do it, which is always, I agree with Alex, it's always preferable if you can get somebody who's talented to do that. A lot of people can't afford that. And I will say, I have had circumstances uh, where I found the the perfect music, or I we actually have four or five people when we're doing a music search. I have four or five different people who are all looking through all the stock music sites because there's an almost unlimited number of them, all searching for something to bring back to the table for when we meet. We've sometimes had it happen in the first half of the first day we're looking. Sometimes it's taken four days of consistent searching before we found something everybody was happy with. And you have to decide that that gets priced into the into the build of the spot. You have to have enough margins in this work to be able – because you never know exactly how much time it's going to take – Unlike some things where you're, you know, pricing hours and, you know, I've got 10 hours to do this. Well, if you find nothing but junky music in the first 10 hours and that's all the time you had for that, your spot's going to be degraded. So if you don't have enough margin, you can't do the right work and get a really good result. Mitchell, you want to come back in again? Yeah, just a warning. Uh, Make sure that you get the codes or whatever else you have to do to claim uh, the use of it as legal, uh, particularly using uh, stock footage or a laser drop. Uh, because somebody else may have already uh, claimed that they own it when they don't. They just have the use of it, and that could be a problem. Yeah, that's a problem on the web. And, and Alex is right. There there are companies that specialize in that. Um, stock music is available to everybody, and because of that, somebody may have put it in a particular forum that you want to put your spot in. I think they have to have a better system. I think they'll eventually get to a better system where things that are licensed – to everyone can't be owned by any particular person. They just have to get that more sophisticated as time goes on. I think you can put the code into the description in YouTube, for example, and that uh, clears it. Oh, okay. I, don't, I, hmm, I haven't done that in a while, but I, uh, there you go. I haven't also gotten any strikes in the last five years, so I'm, fingers crossed. Maybe we just pick weird music all the time. Let's go on to the next question. Craig McFarlane from Boston, Massachusetts, asking... Have we added uh, QR codes worked in, and how do you create them? Does it align to the market? Yeah, we've used them occasionally. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I use, I use a lot of QR codes, as you may have guessed from our show. Um, and uh, a couple things about QR codes. One is I always buy a short URL that goes with it. You can see we have askofficehours.global. Um, and I always buy the $7 or $8 or whatever to buy something that just sits on top of um, that. There, so there's the QR code. But I sit that on top so that if someone for some reason has trouble with reading the QR code, they can still see a URL that they can remember in their head. The mistake people make is this whole like some little weird code at the top that no one's going to remember. But they, if, they, if you see askofficehours.global, you, you, you just can throw that in if you don't – if the QR code doesn't work. 
The other thing that people make a mistake of is if you're going to do an ad with a QR code, it pretty much has to be up the whole time. You got to give people 30 seconds to, <laughs> to pull out their phone and take a picture and figure it all out. Yeah. So if you're going to do it, you got you to gotta commit to it. And it's just going to stay up the minimum time that a QR code, people put up QR codes for like 10 seconds on their on their ad. And I'm like, well, someone read the marketing about QR codes, but have no idea how they actually work um, because that is unusable. So you really have to leave it up the whole time if you want someone to actually use it. Yeah, it also depends on the venue. I'm just going to say this really quickly before I come to you, Courtney. Um, if somebody's swiping through things on their phone, the fact that the QR code uh, is there will not stop them or not stop them. I mean, you know, people don't, there has to be something that attracts their attention long enough for them to pull out their phone and do that. I agree with Alex 100% in that. And I can't tell you how frustrated I've been when I've seen a QR code pop up in something that I'm looking at and it's gone before I'm able to do anything. And I'm saying to myself, do I really want to rewind whatever I'm watching and try to get to the QR code? Nah, I don't. I'm just going to go on. Uh, Courtney? Uh, well, I disagree somewhat. They, uh, I am seeing more and more QR codes show up in commercials, and they don't leave them up the entire time, as Alex said, and it is frustrating if you're just watching live television. But these days, we get so much of our television over streaming and over a TiVo or some type of DVR that has recorded the program that has those commercials in it. You can pause it and take a picture, pull out your phone, take a picture. And the thing that the QR code does is it drives engagement. You know, if it's just a commercial, you'll have to remember, oh, what was the name of that product they were talking about? Where can I find more information? If it has that QR code pop up, uh, you know, it, that can draw you into a, a much more elaborate process or a much more elaborate sales of that particular product. Uh, you're interacting now uh, with a website uh, with that product. So it draws people in, and that way they also get feedback on their commercial, uh, the effectiveness of their commercial advertising, because people that click on that QR code indicate interest. Mitchell? I agree with Courtney 100%. I think that it's ugly, and to put it on an entire spot um, might be redundant. If they're sophisticated enough on how to convert a QR code into a web URL, then they should be sophisticated enough to pause their DVR so they can get a shot of it. Um, I have it at the end. And what's interesting about QR codes, uh, the way I've tested it anyhow, is that it's now becoming recognizable as a call to action, that when you see it, you're supposed to do something. People react like, I have to do something. So I think that's, uh, you know, my two cents, at least on using them. Fair enough. Let's go to the next question. From Rob Collins in Kansas City, Missouri, what video or audio pitfalls should be avoided when creating a good commercial? Mitchell, you want to start us out? Yes, obey the luffs. Uh, I think broadcast is minus 12 luffs. Uh, if you don't, then you're going to have a super loud spot. You're going to get flagged by somebody or, God forbid, the uh, uh, the radio or TV, excuse me, the TV station might uh, take it upon themselves to adjust it themselves. A loud spot uh, that comes on uh, in the middle of another program uh, is very annoying. You want a consistent volume just like we have here on Office Hours. You get by with negative 12? I, I haven't delivered a spot. Almost everything for the web is negative 16. And broadcast stations, particularly things like NBC or big network affiliates, negative uh, 24 luffs. It, that's what I've seen over and over again. Boy, that yours are loud. Uh, anyway, Courtney. 
Yeah, I agree with Mitch. Uh, don't make the music too loud. Although there is this mantra in advertising is annoying cells. And, uh, you know, remember, ring around the collar, ring around the collar, ring. repetition tends to get the point across, although it is rather annoying. So you may have a, a hated commercial because of the, your audio track or the video track, uh, but it probably is an effective commercial. Yeah. Alex? Three times. Uh, say, say I think three times. Notice how many times you see ads where they say the same thing three times, oftentimes right next to each other. Uh, there is a um, known psychological impact of saying it three times that will drive it into, deep into your subconscious. You want to know how many times I showed the logo in the yeah. top five spot? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, but when you say it, it's, it's the audio impact of three times. You'll, you'll see that happen all the time now I've, I've, that's a red pill conversation but now you watch ads watch how much how many times they say something three times or more um, and they're doing that as a programming uh, they're programming you with that process just so you know next question Prema Kadir from Detroit uh, asking are you incorporating AI into your workflow in any way I'm not at this point Mitchell um, I, I have to admit, this is the first commercial I've done. I just did a retail spot for a uh, clothing store. And um, I incorporated it because I had a still shot that I had to open with. And I had to fix it because it was horrible things were in it, like billboards and bad cars and people acting silly. So I did do it. And um, it worked great. But uh, that was the only place I used it. I know a lot of people who, do, who are using it for storyboarding, for animatics, for uh, the pitch portion I haven't seen anybody who's generated anything AI that has gone into an actual ad yet. I don't know why. I'm not, I haven't talked to anybody about that. Uh, the thing that confuses me is usually everything you produce cold, you know, from the ground up, becomes copyright and it's owned by whoever's paying for the uh, for the ad. Um, I'm not sure if that's true of something you generate out of AI that goes in your ad, because generally speaking, that's not copyrightable. So it might be an interesting thing to follow up on. Let's go to the next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, how do you break through the clutter with online audiences when so many Internet users use ad blockers? Oh, boy, you figure that out. We can make you some money. Uh, it's, it's difficult. There's always a chase between the two sides of that. Um, you know, again, eyeballs. That's what people pay for. They want to build an audience, and the entire television industry, the entire movie industry, the entire content industry in large part has been built, generally speaking, on the back of some sort of advertising. I mean, even you go into a theater today and you get ads before the movie. It's just part and parcel of what people expect. And whether it annoys people or not, if somebody thinks that they can boost their business by giving some money to somebody to have access to the audience that they've attracted, that is going to happen. That's my feeling. Anyway, Courtney, what do you think? Well, uh, to get by the ad blockers, a lot of companies now are doing product placement or live reads where, you know, the, the person that's part of the video that you're watching will you know, suddenly break into an advertisement. You know, Twit does this. Leo reads all of his ads live. Uh, so that avoids the ad blockers a lot of times because there's no indication of where the you know, editorial content stops and the advertising content begins. Uh, so that's one good way to maintain interest. Uh, or influencers. You know, influencers are 
basically advertisers. You know, that's the way the advertiser will send their product to the influencer. They'll hope that they do a good review of it. They they'll they'll only send it to the influencers they think will like or review their their product favorably, and uh, that way it's almost free advertising if it's a very famous influencer if it has, they have a lot of following. Uh, so that's one way to avoid uh, the annoyance of a commercial interruption that is unrelated to the programming you're watching. Alex? Probably a whole other session, but uh, content marketing. So build content that is talking about the subject that you're interested in. Uh, a lot of companies do that in different levels. You can... You could, you might want to consider uh, the entire Apple keynote event content marketing for shoot your next video on your iPhone. So they they built a bunch of content that we all wanted to watch, and then they used something, and then at the very end they said, "Oh, by the way, we we used an iPhone for this," and um, that that was probably the most effective marketing for the app, Apple iPhone camera in the history of iPhone cameras. <laughs> so, yeah, and and you know, being what what did they do? They were innovative. Right, we haven't seen that before. They were subtle about it. They didn't hit you over the head with it. I mean, there's there's a time and place for everything, but I think it got more traction. They understand that sometimes you get more traction with the little branding thing than you do with the big I, thing. I think that we, given how much press that Apple has been rolling out all week, I think they were like, you know, I think Apple was like, well, it's just a hardware release for Mac. You know, like we're not, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Let's go ahead and shoot this with an iPhone. Like it yeah. was like, you know, and 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 uh, let's, you know, because the iPhone is definitely sells more, makes more money for Apple. Probably just people deciding to buy the iPhone now because of the fact that it shot the keynote will make Apple more money than selling new Macs. <laughs> That's most likely the, you know, the, the delta between the two. Um, and so, but it's a really good example of, you know, you see a lot of different partners using content to <laughs> to promote what they're doing. Like it's educational content. It's something people are interested in. And, and that, that makes a big difference. Absolutely. One last question. Dave Troutman from Edmonton, Canada. Does humor sell better than facts and details? Uh, it can it can attract attention, and if you attract attention, that's the first part of motivating behavior is you've got to get people to look at you. So, Mitchell, what do you think? Uh, yes, but here's the thing. Um, when somebody has watched a spot, what do you leave them with? What kind of an impression do you leave them with? Did you entertain them? Um, and if humor means entertaining, then they're going to talk about it and spread it around or it's going to stick in their head. Um, if it's facts and figures and details, maybe – but it's, I, I guess the best uh, example I could use is if you're interested in buying a car, um, you're going to notice the billboards about cars up on the billboards because you're in a market to buy a car. And because you're in a market, you're interested in price and, you know, details about the car. Um, if you're not, it's just going right through your heads because you get enough stuff uh, assailing your senses every day. So humor can work if it's good, but not if it's bad. Yeah, and that's that's really you know what one causes one per person to laugh leaves another cold and vice versa. Um, Courtney, where's the beef? Yeah, a <laughs> lot of <the laughs> Clara Peller. Clara Peller. Yeah, humor does sell. Settlemeyer learned that many years ago. Uh, it it uh, as Mitch said, it, it drives a secondary market. If you have a humorous spot out there that people notice, 
they will tell their friends about it and say, hey, have you seen that commercial, that hilarious commercial for, you know, name the product. A lot of times, though, brand recognition is difficult to achieve in a humorous spot. People will remember the humor in the spot, but they won't even remember what the product is. So yeah. if it's uh, too humorous where it, it overshadows the humor is the selling point and not the product, uh, it can kind of work against you. It'll become a very popular spot. But people won't remember what it's been adver- what it's advertising for. And you ask a lot of people when they look at those Super Bowl commercials every year, you know, what the top three Super Bowl commercials were. And you ask them, uh, you know, they'll remember, oh, I like the one that had Larry David in it. And, and you ask them, well, what was that commercial for? They'll go, I don't know. Some yeah. some cryptocurrency thing, I think. I, you know, what was the name of the company? I don't remember. So memorability is is not much because they'll remember the humor, but they may not remember the product. We are at the end of the hour. Thank you so much for watching today, the end of the two hours. Um, tomorrow, don't forget, we're going to do the uh, breakdown of the move. So if you're interested in how the office hours system is being reconfigured, uh, tomorrow is your day. I'm sure part of the team will be here and Alex will be discussing exactly what it went into shutting down the old uh, office hour system and bringing up the new one. So it should be a great day tomorrow. Thank you again to all of our producers, to people who ask questions um, and put them into the system. As always, you sustain us through all these shows, so we appreciate it. The panelists, everybody who is here today, first hour and second hour, and the crew in the back end who quietly toil away getting this done for us every single day. We hugely appreciate your efforts. After hours 24-7, will be on right after this. The Trelock Traversal for today is 73,661 miles. That's 118,545 kilometers. More than 583 million of those yellow things that I... Oh, there it is up on the shelf. Bananas for scale. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow. Ring around the collar. Ring around the collar. State Farm, State Farm. Yeah, they sing it kids. three times. Isn't that annoying? One eight seven seven cars for kids. <laughs> that one particularly. Somehow it all works, and people make a living off of it. My dish is so shiny, I can see myself. <laughs> That's a spicy <laughs> meatball. I should leave the whole thing. Good show. Thanks, Bill. Thank you all. Shut it down.